Hey, before we get started with today's episode, I want to let you know that if you're planning for retirement or aren't sure where to start, we have a helpful checklist for you. We put together a guide called Your Pre-Retirement Checklist and have made it available for free on our website. This detailed checklist covers things pertaining to cash flow, social security, Medicare, asset allocation, and living a purposeful retirement. The link to download the checklist is listed in the episode description, or you can go to wiserinvestor.com, scroll to the bottom, enter your email address, and then you'll have access to your pre-retirement checklist. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wiser Retirement Podcast, where we cover financial topics such as retirement planning, tax planning, portfolio management, insurance, and estate planning, so you too can have a wiser retirement. I'm your host, Casey Smith, guiding you to finish, uh, financial success with my co-hosts, Brad Lyons and Matthews Barnett. Hey, guys. Hi, Casey. How's it going? So let's dive right into today's topic, uh, dividend investing. So, Brad, this is a topic uh, goes a little old school. Yeah. No yeah. pun intended. That's all right. Um, <laughs> That's all right. So, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I understand dividends. I mean, there, there's um, uh, when the market goes flat, then a lot of times your return only comes from the dividends. Mm-hmm. But man, for the last ten years, the S and P five hundred's up two hundred ninety four percent as of yesterday's close. That's a huge rate of return over the last decade. And quite honestly, to be fair to dividend strategies, um, nothing really actually touches that, other than maybe individual stock holdings, obviously. Right. But um, for a diversified portfolio and large U.S. large cap, it's it's very hard to beat the S and P five hundred. In fact, most active managers couldn't even do it. Well. You know, the dividend strategy itself has a much broader context than just growth of capital. The S&P 500 is a growth of capital sort of strategy, okay? Sector investing is often a growth of capital uh, investment strategy. A dividend strategy seeks to find companies that have paid dividends and have made a commitment to pay dividends in the future in both a high yield sense and or a growth sense that goes along with their company strategy. So so last year, okay, dividends grew by $69 billion over the previous year. So corporations passed through to its shareholders $69 billion more in 2021 than they did in 2020. Now that $69 billion more included all the what it was currently paying, so the total amount of pass-through to shareholders on dividends in 2021 was $511 billion paid out to shareholders. And who are the largest shareholders? You know, they're not you and I case, unfortunately. They are literally institutions, pension funds, foundations, endowments, insurance reserves, large pools of capital that use this income in order to meet their, their their obligations, either on a pension sense, any sort of liability sense, pension or insurance reserves, institutions for colleges that pay out scholarships, et cetera, uh, use these dividends in order to meet those obligations. From an individual standpoint, it's a little bit of different, a little bit different though, because it takes such a large amount of capital to produce a sufficient dividend. I think that's what you're alluding to, Casey, is that you know a simple investment in the S&P 500 with its growth compounding with dividends, mm-hmm. okay, simply has outperformed other strategies for, you know, for the past 10 years, including the dividend strategy. The dividend strategy simply couldn't keep up, you know, with the growth of capital in the S&P 500. 
but dividends have been growing over the past 25 years for some of these companies. There's a strategy called the aristocrats, the dividend aristocrats. It's a, it's an index uh, managed and produced by Standard & Poor's. Uh, for companies that have increased their dividends year over year for 25 years. And when you think about what's happened over the past 25 years, we've had the great financial crisis. We had before that, we had the uh, the attack on the World Trade Center. Uh, we've had COVID now, uh, coronavirus, uh, st- shutting down the economy. So we've had these major impacts on the economy and the stock market, and yet Almost 70 companies have increased their dividends now for over 25 years in a row. There's another strategy, and these are kind of the big ones to look at, is the S&P high-yielding dividend strategy. And that includes the uh, companies in the S&P 1500 that have increased their dividends 20 years or more. So you have a, a growth strategy and a high payout strategy. And these companies kind of, you know, um, uh, operate a little bit differently relative to their um, uh, relationship with their shareholders and their capital structure. So it, a strategy isn't simply buying a company that pays out a dividend. That's not an investment strategy. It's literally putting together different sectors of the market and different sectors uh, that pay different amounts of income out to their shareholders. Matthews, you and I were talking a little bit, a little, go, a little bit ago. The the largest um, sector of the S and P five hundred now is the information technology. It's up to twenty eight percent of the S and P five hundred. Look at the very large companies that are in it: Google, Apple, Microsoft, etc. These huge, huge inf- technology companies. Well, along with that, they are also the largest producer of dividends in terms of volume. That's amazing. These are growth-oriented companies that are paying dividends larger than any other sector. It was always thought that dividends were utility companies. And Casey, that, that, to your point where it's an old-school strategy, our parents probably did invest in stocks and utility companies in order to you know, get dividends. It was supposed to be those value companies or the blue-chip companies that were paying those dividends and not the, the growth companies that were supposed to be reinvesting it and growing rather than paying out to shareholders. Well, that's right. A dividend is a, a sign of a healthy company, right? Um, if, if a company's management team is able to manage their revenues and their expenses in such a way that they can earn a profit and pay out a dividend at the same time, it's thought that these companies are a, a very healthy company. So the dividend becomes a, a sign or a symptom of the health of an underlying company itself. So by investing in companies that pay dividends, investors historically have thought that they were buying companies that were healthy, if you will. So the dividend strategies are growing your dividend consistently. Right. Uh, that's replicated through like the ETF VIGs, the Vanguard fund. I believe that reaches down into small caps a little bit too, doesn't it? And it may. It just, it's simply a matter of the, uh, the growth of the dividend and the number of years that they've been able to do that. And then there's just the high-paying dividends out there now. Um, and then there's actually one we talked about earlier um, offline here was was a, a, wisdom a high, high, yeah, high dividend quality. quality. Because, you know, if you look at AT&T, people buy AT&T, oh, have this great dividend, but what? Yes, <laughs> not for long. <laughs> That's true, not for long. Not for but, long. But, on, but on top of that, if you, if you understood their balance sheet and how much debt they have to carry. Right. And that brings up, where does a dividend come from? 
on a corporate balance sheet, right? Healthy companies pay dividends out of net income. Right. Versus unhealthy bar- companies borrow money or, or retained earnings. Right. Right. Which is like borrow money sometimes because they're just reducing the value of their own company when they, when they do that. So what, what uh, strategies will also look at is that what percent of net income are they using to pay that dividend? And the lower the percent of net income that they need to pay that dividend, the even healthier company that it is. The higher the percent of the, the net income that the company requires in order to pay for that dividend, the less healthy it is. And then if they actually are dipping into retained earnings year after year to pay the dividend, that's, you know, that's a sign that over time it's unsustainable and you leave that strategy, that company behind. So over the last 10 years, none of those strategies, either 10, 5, 3, I'm looking through our, our Y chart screen here, either 10, 5, 3, or one-year time periods, the S&P 500 is a clear winner, um, which which has its own dividend. I mean, it, a lot oh, of yes. those companies are, are, most of those companies are still inside. Yeah, almost, I think SPY. it's 385 or so companies in the S&P 500 pay a dividend. Right. Uh, but year to date, you know, the world's changed a little bit this year. Year to date, um, you know, the S&P as of uh, March 28th is still down 3.7. The dividend appreciation fund, uh, that's where dividend growers, right, right down 4.7%. But the total dividend, uh, which is, uh, what is that ticker, SDY, uh, is actually flat at 0.07%. And then the other one, uh, which is the, the S&P, a high yielding dividend. Yes, yeah. just just the list of high, the highest yielding large cap stocks um, is actually up about seven percent year to date. Right. So, it, and certainly if you look at those names, uh, those names are a little more defensive. Uh, SPYD is going to have Baker Hughes, Chevron, Newmont, Valero. Right. All those have done pretty well <laughs> here recently, just because of global events. That's right. So that could be very temporary. Right. Um, but anyway, the, I guess my, my point is I understand the value of income. Uh, and I remember that in our early days here at this firm, you know, we go through, uh, the 2001, we had the nine eleven, right? The world kind of turned upside down a little bit. Uh, and then we, we fast forward to 20, by 2010, we'd had the financial crisis and we had a flat decade. Well, during that 10 year period, the only positive earnings you would have had would have been from income. When the market's flat, you have this income that's coming in. So when I looked at 10-year return of our portfolios here, I realized, man, dividends are really important because over the last decade, it was that income that made us money, not the price return. But the last 10 years are very different. Yes. Very different. Yeah. Studies have shown that um, a little over 30% of the total return of the S&P 500 over long periods of time, we're not talking about short periods of time, yeah. comes from the dividend itself, okay? which means that over 60% is, is the growth of capital on a historical sense. So the, the growth of capital is way outweighs the, the dividend itself, but the significant enough component that when it's compounded year over year over year over year by reinvesting, it's over 30% of the return comes from the dividend itself. Well, you have dividends coming out, but also other corporations that aren't paying as much in dividends are also doing the buybacks. That's true. Right? That's so true. It's, it's, it's not the same thing because you're not receiving income uh, in a buyback, but there, there's less shares available in the market, which is going to push the, push the price up. Push the price, right? earnings per share, the price per share. 
Correct. And the dividends that can be paid out on those shares. Absolutely. Right. So, yeah, they're both uh, ways for companies to uh, return capital to shareholders. Absolutely. Now, in a portfolio, if it's a strategy or if it is the, the whole portfolio, dividends are like free cash flow. Okay. And it's how do you use the dividends? Are you going to use them for consumption? Or are you going to use them to redeploy capital into other areas of the portfolio to get an even higher return than that dividend is being paid to you from the underlying capital? So it's a it's a strategy that produces free cash flow that can be used for other other investments or for current consumption. Brad, how do you how do you think? Well, let me let me start with Matthews actually. Matthews, when we do financial planning, you know, does a dividend strategy really come into play in in planning, because you know when we have when we have our uh, our model portfolios that we build, we're really just looking for total return, right? Yeah, usually, I mean, depending on what portfolio it is, a stock to bonds, you know, we're looking on the average return uh, in order to reach those goals. Uh, I have noticed recently we've been getting a lot more questions about dividend strategies, though, and I'm curious if it kind of pertains to just being historic lows uh, with fixed income returns, because kind of thinking to your point, if they can get a, a decent return from dividends, take that income. Uh, versus getting a very low yield on fixed income, uh, kind of how that would relate. But uh, you still have to remember that even though these high, this is paying out a dividend, still equities, and so you're still taking on more risk versus what you would in a, a fixed income component of things. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know that there's uh, advertisements out there showing that dividend is uh, dividend strategies are less volatile, but we're, you're not, not seeing sure. that, Brad. No, I'm not seeing that. Um, w- when you're in, invested in equities, you're experiencing volatility. Let's face it, okay? So a to be in an, in an equity dividend-paying strategy, you are 100% invested in equities. It is not a diversified portfolio whatsoever. So when you compare it to a 60-40 portfolio, it is more volatile. And as a dividend investor, um, that investor just needs to know that they're going to experience significant volatility in their portfolio over time. Absolutely. Which is what retirees rarely can actually stomach. And it's right. might say they can, but when it actually has a pullback is when the, the issue of making those decisions, if you got out of the market, went to more bonds, fixed income, uh, cash is uh, where it can really become a, a big issue where you would have been better off just taking a little bit less return possibly, but uh, maintaining your risk there. Yeah. Now, as interest rates have come down over literally the past 50 years now, and they really started to hit bottom, you know, several years back. Uh, investors began to bid up prices on company stocks that pay dividends, looking for that yield. Okay, so that began to push dividend investing in a way that really hadn't been thought of before. As a bond proxy, instead of holding fixed income investments in a portfolio, individual investors for the first time were really beginning to push their portfolios towards dividend-paying stocks in order for that yield and as those uh, investors bid up prices, the value of those securities also went up. And then as companies began to continue, um, I should say, increasing their dividend, that increased dividend produces a higher yield that can be supported by a higher price, higher yield, higher price, higher yield, higher price, in order to maintain a consistent level of, of yield versus um, payment. So what what happened over time is that people began getting used to, you know, it buying more and more equities in their portfolios if they were buying dividends. You know, if we go back, you know, there's been a great debate. It's not even a debate anymore. Uh, value versus growth, right? Mm-hmm. 
So if you look at the S&P 500 over the last 10 years on the growth side, uh, we're up 374% with a growth-focused ETF. So this is just large-cap stocks, not not mid or, or small caps, right? Uh, the value... Um, the value return is up 207%. Still have a healthy rate of return over 10 years, but S&P growth is, is almost lapped it, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, it had lapped it up until um, December. In uh, January, it's a tough month for growth stocks. But if you look at like SDY, which is a dividend-focused strategy, it's at 229% over the last 10 years. So that tells me over the last decade that, that dividend stocks tend to follow value stocks. Maybe they're one and the same, right? And what makes a value stock? Makes you typically there's not much room to grow, and it you know Coca Cola could be a value stock at times, right? You can't really sell more cola. You have to discover another planet, right, to sell more cola at this point. So we 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 have to, um, you know, occasionally, you know, maybe management has a misstep. And then the value drops in the stock, and then there's value, right? That's that's what a value stock is. Where a growth would be Apple, right? Mm-hmm. Now, Apple can turn into a value stock eventually, but they still have many more products to develop. Maybe the Apple car, right? Yeah. Whatever whatever they're working on there. I'm sure it's really cool stuff. Um, so they continue to grow and, and build uh, their market cap. Um, so, so right now, everything, just this technology... And all this innovation that we're seeing is coming comes out of the growth sector. Um, so it, it just to me, it's still just it's a hard sell to say, you know, we're going to carve out part of our portfolio or all of our portfolio for a dividend strategy. So how do you see a dividend strategy applying to what I call a modern day portfolio? Well, when you take into consideration something that we haven't talked about until now, and that is the uh, taxation of dividends versus the taxation of uh, income, interest income, and capital gains, it can be a very different story. A qualified dividend is an investment that's been held by an investor for greater than 60 days and then before the dividend is paid, and that produces an IRS qualified dividend status. Okay, Now, that qualified dividend status is taxed at the same rate as capital gains is, versus ordinary income that interest is paid at or taxed at, excuse me. Mm -hmm. So if you're comparing it to a fixed income portfolio that one has no growth and two is taxed at ordinary income, which rates can go as high as what? 37, 38% at least. Right. Versus a capped at 20% for capital gains on a qualified dividend. That taxation differential can make a difference. But again, case we're talking about large portfolios. A small portfolio, it, it has probably no place in it whatsoever, okay? Because you can't have enough earning power in those dividends from a small portfolio that you can in a larger portfolio where those dividend cash flows that are produced can be significant and can have a taxable benefit to them versus an income portfolio from a fixed income corporate bond treasury bond, et cetera. So the way to replicate that would be through individual stocks. You're buying individual stocks with high dividends, but you take on a lot of um, company risk. You take company point. risk, right. Yeah. And that's why you, Enter- ETFs are, would right. be the way to go. Enron had a great dividend. <laughs> right. Right, up <laughs> right, right up until the end, right? Yeah, I don't, 
Yeah. I'm not, I I don't know. I don't have the risk tolerance for individual stocks personally. I don't either. You know, you don't, anymore you don't need to. You know, you, ETFs are stocks. They're, they're trading like stocks. You're getting the capital growth right. of stocks. You're just getting more for your money. It, it's just not a um, it's just not a fair world. You know, I, I mean, I learned this I learned this very early on. Um, I went to a a college up in North Georgia called Barry College and I was very privileged to be the basically the first president, but technically the second president only by a couple of months. Uh, the guy that had kind of led the way graduated and I took over, but it's the Barry investment group. And one of, uh, one of the trustees donated a hundred thousand dollars. I think they're approaching on $800,000 now in value, which is pretty cool. But you, you got, you bought individual stocks of real money in an E-Trade account, which was, you know, the latest, late, the, the latest thing back, back in the nineties. Right. So the, um, they had uh, uh, a proposal. Um, so that's what students would make a proposal. Hey, I think we should buy this in our portfolio. It should be this, um, this allocation, right? And so someone had presented Gap versus uh, Abercrombie Fitch, right? Both were very popular at the time. And we decided to go with Abercrombie. Well, the next day, like literally in the Wall Street Journal, like the, the stock tanks, and everyone's talking about the stock and why it tanked. Well, evidently, there was an Abercrombie executive playing golf with a hedge fund manager somewhere in New York. And he just made the comment that I don't understand why everyone's so worked up over our same store sales. We're not coming anywhere close to that number. (laughs) (laughs) And the guy, the story goes, the guy literally left the golf match. and went back to his office and shorted, started started shorting and selling the stock. And, uh, and and then I was just, I was sort of looking at it's like, man, we we were down like 10% right overnight, very quick. And the rest of the market was up. And I thought to myself, this is why it's not a fair game. Yeah. <laughs> Information. Yeah. He got sued for insider trading. What happened there? I have no idea. Uh, in the end, I'm sure it was, it was litigated out a long time, but there's just a lot of things, individual stocks that you can't control and you don't know anything about. And yes, they disclose all their information, but it's, it's hard to, it's hard to say that that's the correct information, especially some of these outlier companies. Mm-hmm. Well, but, still by the time the average retail investor, even analyst figures out, an analyst at a bigger firm has probably yeah. figured out exactly what their really their standpoint on that fund is. And then I think about the same time when I was in college, they uh, Goldman got in trouble for um, having the squat box. You know, they had the squawk in the morning, and so they would tell they would tell uh, the general public buy or sell on a particular security. But they had this call in the morning with what they really felt about the stock, and they conflicted. So they would tell their best clients that they needed to needed to sell the stock while they were telling the general public they should, they, they were rating it a buy <laughs> and they would leave the, leave the con, leave this, the, the call on. And so people would like sit their cell phones out either recording or playing it for their buddy. Who's a broker somewhere else to, to go, then to go trade the stock. How, how Goldman really thought about it. So I just realized this world's not fair. Uh, especially to the individual investor. And that's why I love ETFs because, you know, I can dilute that risk. It's still going to happen. There's still bad actors out there, mm-hmm. but there are one of, you know, one company out of 500 goes sideways. Well, it's probably a half a percent of my S and P 500 index fund. Right. So it's not that big a deal. Right. Right. So anyway, but getting back to the the dividend strategies. Um, and, and probably Casey, <laughs> to your point is that you can, in a total return strategy, for a retiree, 
where Matthews has gone done through the whole financial planning process, and we've determined the cash flows that they need from a portfolio. You don't need probably as much from a total return strategy that you would need in a dividend strategy to produce that same amount of income. Correct. Yeah, and that's the point. You know, in an, why an individual it shouldn't be in a total strategy in their as their whole means of retirement because if you start selling part yeah. of the shares of the yeah. dividend, you're, you're, you're going to get less dividends. You're going to get smaller dividends. Whereas in a total return strategy, that concept goes away because you're looking at the capital appreciation to sell off in the future. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. It, uh, we get that question occasionally. Well, I can just live off my my income from this, right? I don't won't touch principal. And it's like, no, it's it's a it has to be a two part strategy. Yes. We need growth of the market as well as the income from the portfolio to generate the return. Some years you go into principal. Some years you make three times as much as what you're you needed, right? And it all kind of balances out mm-hmm. in the end. And we and we use. Uh, we have a lot of calculators for that, Matthews, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's why you, you see that too with, uh, we know we're showing the cash flow charts and financial plans is uh, if all things go well, the portfolio grows even with the withdrawal because of that same point is their their income need is less than the overall total return of the portfolio. So during the good times, it continues to increase. Uh, and that's the main goal is not depleting your whole principal throughout retirement. So the, um, you know, it, there is a point at which it crosses over. So I, I guess it's just simple math. If you're getting a 2% portfolio yield and you need $100,000 a year, I mean, it's a big number. It's a big number. It's, <laughs> it's a big ask, as they say. Yeah, yeah. but that's, yeah. you know, for those clients, though, we were more focused on legacy planning and, and you know, probably family limited partnerships because there's probably a business worked in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there there's... It's a whole different world, but, it is. but we're talking to everyday investors, $5 million or less, $10 million or less in investable assets. Um, going solo on a complete dividend strategy is not the best way to do that. Now you could, you could have, uh, you know, we do satellite core, right? So mm-hmm. you could, our core could still be S and P 500, but then you overlay uh, one of these ETFs that we've been talking about in addition to that, exactly, just to have that exposure yeah. to those stocks. To those stocks. If you want the dividend growers, you're going to get a little bit more growthy. Yeah. If you want the dividend payers, you get a little bit more value. But either way, you're creating cash flow for your own portfolio that can be redeployed into other areas, you know, as now, the manager but, sees fit. But you also referenced that, you know, sometimes these could be a bond substitute. I mean, who's, who's actually going to give up the security of bonds for a dividend strategy with, well, again, with, in, with in, stock in because, institutions. That's what they were doing. Okay. Okay. They were, they were decreasing their allocation to fixed income and thereby increasing it to equity, but they were using dividend paying equities to do it. Right. Okay. So, right. They were, but for individual investors, if we did that, we're going to take them out of their risk profile. That's right. And they could get uncomfortable if the market goes That's right, south. because you still experience volatility because you compare yeah. it to the whole strategy, not equity to equity, but equity to a blended portfolio. It sounds good the market is performing well, not so much uh, during volatile times as when you actually need to stick to the strategy. And, and that's a good point because over the last 10 years, um, it's a pretty steady up I mean, other than a small blip here and uh, at the end of, was it 2018, 
Uh, and then the COVID crash, which was almost like a flash crash. It happened so fast and then it rebounded so fast that people have already forgotten about it. And then now we have um, this latest dip right now, um, which oddly enough, the dividend strategies are holding up in this one. They're holding it, up quite nothing well. held up during COVID, right. <laughs> but, yeah. but it's holding up very well right now. Because there's a, there's a, a third component to dividend investing, and that's interest rates. So you have company risk, market risk, and interest rate risk in dividend investing. So there's this third component that comes in from the side <laughs> that you have right. to watch out for. And that's what we're experiencing now is a change of interest rates that's occurring in the marketplace. So we'll see how these dividend strategies play out and how investors feel about these companies that pay dividends in a rising interest rate environment. Well, the dividends aren't going to incre- increase with current inflation rates. They, there's, there's, I don't see they them can't. going up by no. you know, increasing your dividend by 8%. No. Because the company's expenses are increasing. <laughs> right. you know, <laughs> <so they're laughs> if they do stay away from the company, they, probably. They, they may right. be increasing their revenues, but they're increasing their expenses. So right. that's why you have this, this uh, what percent of net income are they using to pay that dividend? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I, I think the thesis here is, is you know, dividend investing, I, I feel like it made sense this the blue chip stocks of your grandfather's portfolio that did well, worked well, lasted a long time. But I feel like in today's age, um, a dividend focus only is going to be value focused only and value focused um, did not do well for you over the last 10 years. And quite honestly, you know, people are saying, Oh, value is going to make, have a good year. I mean, year to date uh, we've had a rebound here recently in growth. Uh, but year to date values about flat and growth is um, about down about 7%, but it's coming back. It's coming back hard <laughs> the last couple of weeks. Anyway, uh, it's just, it's just hard to believe that that growth companies, if you look at the list um, you know, of, of uh, the companies inside the growth index, it, it's hard to believe that those companies aren't going to be successful going forward. And why wouldn't people keep piling more money into those those companies? Most likely as investors, they will. And someday these companies will become dividend payers as well. So they'll reward the, that long-term shareholdership for with dividends at some point in time. Don't know when, uh, as they're using their all their net income now to to uh, fund future research and development and well, production costs. Look at the top. The top two growth companies, Apple pays a dividend, mm-hmm. right? That's their- how long has that been now? Is it still less than ten years? Not very long, yeah. Yeah, Microsoft pays a dividend. They have for a they long have time. for quite a long time now. I don't think Amazon does. I know Tesla no. doesn't. No, no. Alphabet, I don't no. think they push off any dividends. No. I know Meta doesn't. Home Depot pays a dividend. Yes, it does. It pays a very good dividend. It's considered a growth stock. So, um. You know, even the growth companies, there's income there as well. I mean, heck, let's see. I've got it right here in front of me. The dividend yield for the, um, well, it's not much. <laughs> it, it's 0.7% It's a yeah. distribution yield for the growth stocks. So, yeah, you're just still not buying the growth index for with an income component. No, you have to look for uh, uh, ETFs, indexes that have a uh, dividend growth component. Yeah, you know, 
to get the growth companies. In this there. is this is not a dividend focus at all, but just value focused, and it yields basically two percent. Um, there, where you know SDY, which is more of the standard um, ETF, has a distribution yield of two point six seven percent, and then the S and P uh, high yield. Well, just S and P five hundred right oh. now. That screen just went blank on me. I need to come back to oh, here. It is, um, yeah. Just the S and P five hundred yield should be below two. I think they uh, just moving things around on me. Where is it? Hmm. I'll come back to that. <laughs> Um, dividend growers, the dividend growers, um, don't have as high of a yield as you would, as you would think, I guess, cause they're, they're they incorporate smaller companies, I guess. Um, it's 1.72%, uh, dividend yield for dividend growers. So it's a little smaller than you would think the, um, Here, the S&P 500 is showing 1.31% right now. Yes, that's a, a function of the pricing of the S&P 500 now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also you have all these, these companies that we just mentioned that aren't paying dividends that ha- have a major you know, position in the S&P 500. Yeah, true. Yeah. 3.63% distribution yield for just the highest. Yeah. The highest dividend yielding. Yeah, so companies. those that pay and those that pay a lot, you know, that's a pretty good size yield. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, I always come back to this because I just laugh at it. Um, just the whole the whole ESG rating thing. So at ETF.com, when you look up these dividend yields, you look up uh, different research. The um, They tell you the MSCI... Um, the MSCI... Uh, uh, ESG, ESG rate rating, rating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and all these com- all these companies are double A ratings, which is the highest that I've seen, even for ESG funds, other than SDY, which um, I think has got some big oil in there. But anyway, all have very high ratings. I don't understand why people buy ESG funds. I just don't don't get it. You're you're putting millions of dollars into other people's pockets unnecessarily when the standard indexes, all these indexes are less than one-tenth of a percent in, in fees, right? So the um, anyway, well, good conversation. Thanks for all your information, Brad. And You're welcome. Uh, I told you it was one of my best, uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite topics. Yes. Um, all right. See you guys next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to a Wiser Retirement Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. That way you don't miss any new episodes. We would also appreciate if you could leave a rating and review. If you have any questions about anything that was discussed today, head to wiserinvestor.com and reach out. We would love to hear from you. This episode was produced and edited by Lilton Moore. Wiser Wealth Management Incorporated is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.